Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you on another Thursday evening where we are set to explore another special topic. Now, this evening, I have asked a special guest to come in from the state of Pennsylvania, and I'll, I will welcome him here in a bit. Uh, but the reason why I've asked him to come into studio with me by way of phone is because of your response last week to my reflection on what is going on in the Catholic Church specific to Cardinal McCarrick and yet another scandal. Since that time to today, <laughs> more has come out, and I thought it would be really good to hear from someone who is actually in the state of Pennsylvania now. We can more or less call this a part two because I think a lot of what we talk about this evening will be but an extension of what we talked about last week. So I am excited to have Bob Sutton in studio with me by way of phone. Bob, great to have you with me another evening. Thanks, Joe. Great to be here. Before we go any further, I guess I should let our listening audience know uh, what it is that you do and why your voice is so important for us this evening. Uh, you are from the state of Pennsylvania. You're a Catholic school teacher. You are a campus minister on a Catholic high school. You teach. You're an adjunct teacher professor at a Catholic college. So uh, you're on the front lines. <laughs> and I think uh, the place from which you speak is very important, not only because you reside in the state of Pennsylvania, but Bob, you and I have known each other for quite some time, and you are a man of insight, and I do appreciate our friendship. And I think our listening audience will be enriched by our conversation this evening. So with that, like I said, Bob, from last week to this week, we've had yet another thing come up, and... This is in your uh, neck of the woods, in your backyard. Can you let our listening audience know ever so briefly what has happened in the state of Pennsylvania and maybe some observations that uh, you have as it relates to just not residing from the state of Pennsylvania, but more specifically your home diocese of Altoona, Johnstown? Sure. Um, you know, as you said, it was a week ago. It's funny, when you said that, I thought, oh my goodness, it's it's only been a week. It hasn't even been a full week, and it feels <laughs> so much longer than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's weighed so heavily, but there's eight total dioceses within uh, the state of Pennsylvania, and the there was an independent investigation by the Attorney General's Office of the state of Pennsylvania. So this was independent of the Church's request or the Church's invitation, uh, invitation uh, several dioceses, starting with the Philadelphia Diocese about a decade ago, had an investigation uh, come and, and just go through all their records independently. So there was no bias, no, you know, no way to cover up or buy off or anything else. Uh, and it, it was horrific. And everyone said, oh, my goodness, can you imagine being in that diocese? Uh, well, a few years ago, it was my own diocese of Altoona, Johnstown, that went through that process. And it was independently investigated by the state attorney general, and there was this horrific report that came out uh, spring two and a half years ago, 2016. And it was, it was brutal. It was brutal. You know, our faith was so deeply shaken. It, it, it's so, uh, there's such a difference between reading about predator priests, between reading about covering up, and then to see a list where you say, oh my goodness, that priest baptized my niece. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, that priest married us. That priest, we had him over to dinner. You know, uh, that bishop. You know, I was there. He gave me an award, and I was so proud to get it from him. Uh, there was a big difference there. It was it was a deeply purifying, deeply uh, overwhelming time for the for the faithful here in our diocese. Well, with that coming out, the attorney general said we need to do this everywhere within our state. This is our responsibility to do this as a legislative office. And so they investigated the remaining six and compiled a report. Um, it was set to be released this past spring. There was a little delay. The, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania was actually a little worried about um, accusing people to a grand jury without a formal process. And so there was some redaction of names. Long story short, uh, last week, just before the Feast of the Assumption, um, the report was released. Uh, and it was, a, it was a, again, just brutal, uh, where it was just lists and lists of uh, 300, 300 abusive priests over the course of 70 years, and the inaction or the uh, ineptitude or sometimes the, the covering up uh, by bishops during that period. So again, now the whole state is going through what my home diocese went through two and a half years ago. We're still kind of in a, sh- a state of shock. Bob, now you talk about two and a half years ago. One of the things that just not Catholics but non-Catholics are crying for is reform. You and I were talking earlier about that, and uh, from what I was hearing, your home diocese of Altoona, Johnstown, has in fact put some things of reform in place, yeah? Yes, indeed. We were very blessed, Joe, in the fact that by the time the report came out, I mean, there just wasn't much positive in there, of course. But one of the bright spots was that they praised our current bishop, uh, Bishop Mark Barczyk, for having been out ahead of this thing. He, had, he was bishop by the time the report came out, four or five years. He was still relatively new. Uh, but he had come to us from another diocese, the Diocese of Erie, also in Pennsylvania, where he had been a Monsignor and a canon lawyer. So he had dealt with abuse cases. He was one of the people that had to investigate them there and report them to his own bishop. And so when he came here to us, you know, before this report was on the horizon, you know, it was not a sense to try to make it look good. He automatically uh, followed that, the Dallas Charter to the letter. So he came as a bishop with a profound awareness of how deeply rooted uh, the abuse can be and how much transparency is needed. And so uh, thanks be to God, the report said, you know, at least the bishop there now, without knowing that this report was coming, has always reported abuse, has mm-hmm. always removed abusers. But when the report came out, Bishop Mark came out and said, you know, that's not enough to say we're doing a good job of removing reports or that we've trained everyone. He said there needs to be an independent, uh, we've had an independent investigation. We need to have an independent panel to review all cases of abuse, to keep everyone accountable so the public can know. So he instituted automatically a website that's, on the diocese website, I should say, there's a perpetual list there of all priests that have been removed for abuse uh, in the past who are convicted of abuse, and also all priests who might be currently on leave, awaiting some kind of criminal or uh, canonical trial uh, upcoming, so that anyone can access it at any time. Um, the major reform, though, was within a year of that, he worked with the State Attorney General's Office and with uh, panels of abuse rights victims and everything, and they came up with an independent review panel, so that any time any kind of uh, suspicion of malfeasance or any kind of abuse report is made, it's going to go through a panel that includes law enforcement officials, non-Catholic people, secular experts, uh, even abuse survivors, mm. so that there's no uh, stone left unturned. Mm. Um, he said, you know, it's not enough just to say we'll do a better job of reforming people. 
we need to get to the root of the system and how the failure was systemic and not just individual or personal on the part of priests or bishops, that there was something in the system as it existed that enabled the abuse and the abusers and the cover-up. Bob, you talk about getting to the root of the system, and I, and I like those two words put together, the root of the system. Can you speak to that maybe in more concrete terms and do so within the context of maybe some of the things that your uh, home bishop is doing? You know, seminary formation, he was associated with the seminary up in, in Erie, and we have, you know, Joe, believe it or not, we have more men in formation now for our diocese in the last two and a half years than we did for probably 15 years Oh, uh, I believe it, Bob. I believe it because of the very thing we're talking about right now, right? It's the grace of God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's yeah. the grace of God, and I know our vocations director said within two weeks of the report coming out, he said he was just devastated mm. as vocations director, mm. and he said he had two phone calls expressing interest uh, in the seminary. And he said, I, I didn't know what to say except, you mean right now? Like, he yeah. just couldn't believe yeah. it. But it, it speaks to the fact that uh, there is some fundamental truth of recognizing that this is not the fault of the Catholic faith. It's a fault uh, that lies with, in the formation, in the system, in the hierarchy. Hmm. There are cracks in the system uh, that, that were fault lines, yeah. that were just walled, wallpapered over. Yeah. that enabled abusers to slip in and really grow in their abuse. You know, yeah. uh, I'd spoke uh, much of what has come out uh, recently in some excellent Catholic bloggers um, and, and writers, uh, Dr. Janet Smith, uh, several bishops have pointed this out, and really with the, the Cardinal Theodore McCarrick case uh, kind of blowing open. And people talked about it as a Me Too moment where he was uh, stripped of the cardinalate. You know, he was accused of abusing a minor decades ago. But really what overwhelmed that was the number of young priests and seminarians that he had approached as a predator, as an arch, as a bishop, as an archbishop, as a cardinal, and had systematized, it was an institutional sin yeah. in his archdiocese, where there was a whole subculture of men that were freely violating their vows of chastity uh, in same-sex relationships and pressuring them. It was, it was a predator uh, relationship with new seminarians. And I know that uh, Bishop DiNardo, who's currently the head of the, the Catholic Bishops Conference in the United States, when he put out a, a several-point document last week and said, it's not enough to say we feel bad, here's what I want to do, mm-hmm. he wants to bring in an independent investigator so that there's no chance of cover-up or pressure on the McCarrick case and what the system was. But he also said, we need systems in our diocese where priests and seminarians can confidentially report to outside authorities. You know, in a case where you've got bishops or vicar generals or rectors of seminaries or heads of religious orders, you know, the way the system was set up, if you had a complaint, that's the person that the complaint goes to. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and what do you do when that's the predator or someone who's involved in the system? Yeah. You know, 15 years ago when this all was coming out, the reality is and no one was really talking about it then, although a few were, one of which I think recently died, <laughs> and maybe we could talk about yeah. him a little bit, Bob, was saying, hey, the problem is seminarians were crying foul, but to the individual they were crying foul too, it was the one who was the problem. Catholic author, I think he wrote The Benedict Option, is that Rod Dreher? Yeah, the right mm-hmm. guy? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was, when, when the McCarrick case came out, he just exploded on the internet for about a week, and I was not used to seeing that from him, Mm, Um, mm. but he said he had been boiling over for nearly 20 years that he had met current priests, former seminarians, 
that would tell him in great detail the system that was in place under McCarrick and how abusive it was and how intimidating and how horrible. Uh, and yet he couldn't get any of them to go on the record. Even after McCarrick had retired, the sense of the retribution that could follow, the sense of the power that was in place to cover, to cover up that abuse, that system, and to enable it, was staggering. And mm-hmm. so he said, I, I couldn't go on the record with this because no one would go on the record. He said, mm-hmm. it, it just felt so, you feel so powerless mm-hmm. to be able to help the victims. You know, there was a book that came out, oh, I think it was right around 2002, maybe a little bit before 2002, called uh, Goodbye, Good Men. Yes. And th- there were lots of things that that book talked about. But if you were to read that book, I, I don't think you can get away from the fact that what we're talking about now is foundational to that book, even if the book didn't speak to it. Because in the end, what you're talking about in that book, and, and for those of you out there who aren't aware of this book, it's about men who were discerning the priesthood and for one reason or another were discouraged in their priesthood and they left the priesthood um, or left seminary formation. They were discouraged for one reason or another, often from directors, you mentioned vicar generals, uh, house directors, just discouraging a life of holiness, just discouraging a life of chastity, uh, as, as opposed to, you know, living a life that Pope Francis was talking about in this most recent letter of praying, fasting, and, and fighting the culture. They were, you know, going out on Saturday nights, having $200 dinners, no exaggeration, and, uh, you know, around men who were preying upon them. And this, this was just part of the subculture. Do you want to be a part of that as a seminarian? No. So you leave. Right? Now, again, this was not talked about in the book explicitly, but I will tell you <laughs> this was going on. Yeah, and I was going to say, I, I have to say, Joe, I used to hear those stories and the individuals that would tell the stories. It seemed so far-fetched, Joe, mm-hmm. <laughs> that sure, there could be sure. a system that evil that ingrained. I, I was willing to believe, oh, that's terrible. Some diocese must have a seminary like that. There must be a few of those around the country. I was not really until this summer when all the data and all the reporting has come out. And, you know, that's a long way from having formal investigations even. It was hard to credit and to take seriously. It sounded like science fiction for, for a, a faithful Catholic who loves his church. I had a hard time believing. And, you know, that's always been part of the problem. You know, besides the cover-up, it just sounded so far-fetched for something this evil to be that deeply rooted in our Church. It was hard to take it seriously. It has been said that one bad one sours ten good ones in any context. And unfortunately, you know, Bob, there might be, and there is, more than one bad one. And what it does is it creates this mindset of, well, if there's one, two, three, five, ten bad ones, that means the hundred good ones, in my mind, are bad. And, and that's what the Church has to recover, this sense of, you know, there are holy priests, there are holy bishops, there are holy archbishops, there are holy cardinals. A, a lot of us, you and I, Bob, have close friends who are priests, bishops, archbishops, and cardinals, and they are yeah. great men, holy men, um, healthy men, right? And people look upon them. I was just with a close priest friend of mine yesterday, and uh, we were in a coffee shop, and I just saw the scowls. It's 2002 all over again. And he yeah. told me, Joe, I feel naked the way people look at me. Maybe that's not the best word to use, but that's what he said, and, and I get what he's saying because of the perception. And so part of the praying, fasting, and fighting is to always 
be truthful, always be honest. Well, part of always being truthful and honest is not only identifying, you know, these predators and what they're doing, but also the fact, Bob, that there are a great number of men, celibate men, who are living heroic lives. Yes, very much so. I would say two things. You know, one of the, uh, Richard Sype, we mentioned him earlier in the conversation. He just passed away. Just all these things running together. Cardinal McCarrick uh, came out at the end of July. This report came out in the middle of August. And right right as the report was being released, uh, Richard Sype died. Now, Richard Sype was, for years, one of the lone voices out there saying, here's exactly what the numbers of abuse are. And again, he was always treated like those numbers are so high. That's ridiculous. No one would believe that. But Richard Sype um, had been in the priesthood years ago, you know, had amicably uh, left. He was, he was married. But he had worked as a counselor for a number of priests and religious orders. And so he knew from the inside out what was going on. And so he wrote books about this. He made reports. He, he spoke to bishops. And he was always kind of blackballed and put on the fringes. Uh, he emerges a major figure in that spotlight report that, of course, the movie was made. And he's a character in there where they, you see the moment when the characters call on the phone. They say this guy's supposed to be an expert, but everyone says he, he has no credibility. And when they call him and say, is it possible that there's, you know, a dozen priests in, our, in Boston? And he says, no, I'd be looking for about 90. And, you know, he wasn't even in state, and he said these are the percentages across the board. Yeah, and yeah. He, was, he was right. Now, what he said at the time, everyone was praising him as a hero after that report. He was finally getting his due. But he expressed frustration because he says they're addressing the abuse and the abusers only, and they're not removing this system. And he said what is enabling the abuse is this subculture of men who are same-sex relationships, same-sex attracted, but they're abusers. These are not men who are just violating their chastity, their celibacy, yeah. they are institutionalizing it. They are pressuring other men. That you know, the reports that come out now with, with McCarrick and elsewhere in these seminaries, where you would be invited to these parties and there'd be a number of active priests from the diocese there drinking drinks, trying to get on with seminarians. I mean, and Richard Sipe said, look, the two, it's like a Venn diagram, they overlap. Yeah, yeah. You can't get rid of the abuse and let that subculture there because... That idea of the coercion, the institutionalization of the radical violation of celibacy. This is not a fail in chastity. This is a intended sacrilegious, systemic abuse of celibacy within the priesthood. The elevation of those men in order to keep that covered up, when one of them gets to be a rector, mm-hmm. they shape the seminary with yep. that culture. When one of them gets to be a bishop, they place other priests from that subculture in positions of power, that's what enabled so much of this to come about. With Morlino, as, as you said, Bishop Morlino was very clear. He said, it's not just about the abuse and what we do for reform. I pledge in this diocese, we need to, we're going to create a culture where any priest, any seminarian can report any kind of invitation or pass being made to them through a confidential system. We are going to help each other live our vows. Mm-hmm. We are going to pledge that this is part of our service to Jesus Christ. It's an essential part of our ministry. It's not just a discipline it's part of our holiness that we need to offer the people of God. And ultimately, Morlino, you know, ended, he says, I can't control what the bishop's conference will do, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is yeah. what we will do in Madison. And I thought that was a great statement. Yeah, I thought it was a great statement, too. And one of the things I really appreciated, Bob, was he called upon the laity to step forward and to be part of the healing process. Amen. Uh, not only in his own diocese, but at the same time, challenging everyone in the United States of America 
Uh, if you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a Catholic, step forward, because this healing process isn't going to begin until everyone is a part of it, right? We all belong to the mystical body of Christ, and we all share in the redemptive mission of Christ. And as we do, what we have to understand is this is a time of purgation. Uh, This is a time where the Church is being purged, and she must be purged because she, at her core, is holy. And if there is something that is unholy, then it must be cleansed, and this is why the Church is going through a cleansing. It is not some random concurrence of imperceptible events that Richard Sype just died. This is the 50-year anniversary of Humanae Vitae, right? Yes. This is the great document that, that spoke to who we are in our sexuality. It's the document that talked about why living out our sexuality in a healthy way, in a healthy manner, is quintessential to our life of holiness. You cannot just compartmentalize the faith. You cannot compartmentalize our sexuality. And as Humanae Vitae was written, Bob, one thing that was spelled out clearly is that if you violate the natural law, there will be consequence. And in 1968, Pope Paul VI said, you know, those consequences will include rampant sexual misbehavior, rampant divorce, rampant suicide, all of it. Um, many people call Paul the Sixth, Pope Paul the Sixth, a, a prophet because of what he spoke to in that encyclical. But for us here this evening, what I want to highlight is as we celebrate the 50-year anniversary of this great document, Humanae Vitae, we do so by rereading it and internalizing its subject matter. And yeah, we give a nod, we we put a feather in Pope Paul VI's cap, right? <laughs> because he was spot on. But beyond that, what is he saying? How is he challenging us to be more holy in the light of our sexuality? Again, not a coincidence, but a God incident that all of this is happening on the 50-year anniversary, because if we're going to rediscover uh, what it means to be holy and correct that path, uh, realign ourselves onto the path of holiness, it's going to, it's going to happen with the help of a, a healthy reading of Humanae Vitae. And I, I hope it won't be a coincidence either, Joe. You know, when the bishops meet, they meet in the fall, and Pope Paul will be canonized, yeah, <laughs> you know, in amen. mid-October. Amen. And I'm hoping that will open up some yeah. grace, you know, that that's, that's the message they need to be hearing amen. and responding to. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you can't ignore it. One of the things we were talking about uh, before we came on air, Bob, was that if nothing else, at this point, you can't ignore the problem. Be rest assured, my friends, all of you faithful listeners out there, What came out in Pennsylvania won't be the last case. There's going to be more, but there's going to be more because at this point you can't ignore it. You are going to see a massive cleansing over the course of the next few months, few years, because at this point it's just impossible to do otherwise. And I think, Bob, really, that's a grace. That's a grace that now you will see more lay people involved, more priest bishops involved in change, because enough is enough. And uh, as you and I have both experienced, there are Catholics who are looking at this. I know I touched upon this last week, but looking upon this, thinking to themselves, what church is it that I belong to? We're we're questioning our faith. You know, we're we're doubting our faith as opposed to taking a step back in that virtue of recollection and asking the new and necessary question, Lord, you revealed that the fullness of truth is found in this Catholic faith I believe in, but what do we do with this? (laughs) You know, yes. That's a new day, I think, for many of us. 
Well, and I think in the Sunday readings, you know, we've been doing John 6, this cycle, and we get to those words here on Sunday, you know, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, mm. you have the words of eternal life, even in the same breath that the Lord announces the betrayal of Judas. Mm. You know, mm. it's, it's a necessary dichotomy. It really is. My closing thought is this, and our faithful listeners can almost, I think, anticipate what I'm going to say, because it's been such a point of emphasis for me, Bob. Over the last, oh, what, 45 years since uh, the proclamation of St. Catherine of Siena and St. Teresa of Avila uh, being declared doctors of the Church, I would argue that there is a new emphasis on this call we have to be a mystic. And what do I mean? Well, if you look at the last six doctors of the Church, all six are, are or can be regarded as mystics. And here I'm not, I'm not talking about mystic per se in the context of all of us are to experience God's rapture. No, God reserves that for you know, his own discretion. Not everyone experiences that. But as baptized believers, we are incorporated not into just the body of Christ, but into the mystical body of Christ, where we are made to contemplate the deeper mystery. In 2018, we are made to contemplate the deeper mystery of what God is doing today. And the only way we can really get at, Bob, what we are to do today is to contemplate that mystery. So this call that is before us, this baptismal call that is before us, is one that calls us out as a mystic, and it's high tide we embrace this call, not caught up in all of the secular things of the world where, where we find ourselves in pointless conversations, but no, in the light of what Pope Francis was just saying, praying, fasting, fighting the culture of death in the light of who God calls us as a child of God. So important. There are some things that only fasting can change. And so, uh, yeah, don't take Jesus's words lightly and uh, don't take our Holy Father's words lightly, too. Uh, all very important. Well, Bob, thank you for the gift of your time. I know it was a very spontaneous call. I uh, you called me over the weekend, I called you back, and I said, hey, before we jump into anything else, can, can you jump into the studio with me through the phone? And you were very gracious with your time, and I appreciate that. You spoke quite eloquently, Bob. I think our listening audience appreciates that, so thank you again for the gift of your time. Thank you, Joe. God bless. Let us uh, go ahead and close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of this evening, this particular evening, Heavenly Father, which afforded us the opportunity to reflect into all matters relevant to our experience of the faith today, we ask that you first and foremost bring healing to those who need healing and uh, guide those conversations that, that need your guidance in the gift of your Holy Spirit. And as we always do, we pray, all glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless Amen. you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.